morning. Happy Mother's Day to everyone. <laughs> Saying that because I'm thinking in all of us we have the power and the ability to nurture and sometimes we choose to do that. And, um, my son is here today in the back row and <laughs> I was surprised he came home on Friday from his work at a preschool and he had a bunch of flowers <laughs> and it, that was Mother's Day and they gave him these flowers and of course I was kind of stuck in my views of, of I was born in 64 so I was like you know I got some of those very specific views about women do this and men do that and then they have to you know, move forward and so it was kind of delightful to get stuck like that <laughs> you're like oh they're giving flowers to my son so on mother's day um and of course you know thank you to all the women who gave birth and made the efforts to do their best to raise you know, their children. Um, and then also, I'm very grateful to my mother, and she's gone now, and I think of her on this day. And so for all of us, we all have a mother. So my talk today is about a female character could be a real thing we don't know it's kind of lost to time what actually happened but it was recorded uh this female um dragon princess and her story is recorded in the lotus sutra and so the name of my talk today is the dragon princess becomes a buddha and the text that I drew my information from primarily is the stories of the Lotus Sutra. Uh, and Jean Reeves is a translator. So the Lotus Sutra is a collection of oral teachings that dates back to the Buddhist time in India. And by way of China and Korea, the sutra made its way to Japan in the 6th century. Um, our founder, Ahei Dogen, started off in the Tendai sect, and this sutra was part of their training, and it was used as a, a sutra that was chanted and also considered a protective uh, tool in Japan at that time. Um, the theme that I want to share with you from the sutra is that all humans can become a Buddha. However, our ignorance in the form of fixed views needs to be overcome. So I want to first give a light discussion on what does becoming a Buddha, what is that? Um, Again, 
Dogen instructs on becoming a Buddha in the Fukan Zazengi fascicle, which we frequently chant here at Clouds and Waters. And he says, have no designs on becoming a Buddha. So this tells us what we have to let go of to become a Buddha, designs, making plans, creating an expectation of how it will look to be a Buddha. I don't think it's saying, don't think about becoming a Buddha, don't have that as an aspiration. It's just the way in which we're approaching it is not about making a plan to do it. Um, but in the Lotus Sutra, it's very clear that becoming a Buddha is fulfilling the four great vows. And in this sutra, these are expressed in this way, enabling everyone to overcome suffering, removing all hindrances to awakening, studying all the teachings, attaining the Buddha way of awakening. So it's activity. So as practitioners of Soto Zen, we aspire to these impossible resolutions, um, but we don't always make it happen. Maybe rarely do we make it, but it's the aspiring to do it that is what matters. And within that activity, we're able to do many good works. You know, we're able to address giant problems, even though they're very general concepts. My experiences by just holding them within my thinking, within my body, difficult choices are easy. And I can't really tell you the exact physics of that, how does one lead to the other, but that has been my deep experience since entering into Buddhism. And I also noticed when I was listening to Reverend Jimmy Onikura, who spoke here in April, that there was a moment in her talk where she stopped and she got very real. <laughs> And she said, what is the purpose of practicing Buddhism? And the group here, we were probably all thinking something in our head, but didn't respond. And she said, to become a Buddha. And it surprised me because what I had in my head was to end suffering. And I, I feel from my Zen training, that was more what I heard. Uh, but as we can see, if you're becoming a Buddha, that's the number, I mean, what I read in the order, number one, enabling everyone to overcome suffering. So it's part of the experience, part of what Buddhas are doing for us at all times. So Moving to the sutra a little more deeply, there are several sections of the sutra describing the followers of the Buddha asking the Buddha 
for assurances that they will become Buddhas. So just like me, <laughs> I'm doing this hard work. I want a reward. I want to know when is it going to happen? You know, will it pan out? Will I get what I want? Uh, and they are told that after making great effort, overcoming ignorance, making billions of offerings and serving and apprenticing to many, many Buddhas for a very, very long time, they will become Buddhas. And the followers are happy to hear this, not thinking, oh, it's too much, I'm done. You know? <laughs> like, this will be worth it. And all along the way, I'm going to be, you know, practicing and, and spreading, especially in the sutra, they're very interested in spreading the news about Buddhism to as many people as possible by reciting the sutra and uh, sharing it. You know, going to their, the, what they had at the time was oral. They didn't have a written way of sharing information. So this story within the sutra about the dragon princess caught my attention because it's really a different message than this great effort, long long practice over many, many lifetimes. It, it's a different message than that. Um, it gives the point of view of the dragon princess as this happening, and also you hear the point of view of people that are watching it happen. And it's Part of it very disappointing, <laughs> so spoiler alert. <laughs> um, so I was not, I was repelled by the story at first, but I also find that interesting. When a story is not pleasing to me, I want to practice with it and get to an understanding of why I'm reacting like that and what part of myself actually lines up with each person in the story. So um, trying to look into their motivations, their views, so I can reach my own that I'm hiding from myself. Sometimes it, for me it works, like I can view someone else doing something and like, nah, not so great, but they're human, and then I can get a sense I'm doing it too. And that's to me, a good tool. And then once I can really acknowledge, yes, I am doing that too, then I can do the work of either amplifying what really is beneficial or, you know, dissolving and letting go of what's unsavory and harmful to others. So I will now read the story. Um, so the setting is uh, the Buddha is sitting, you know, in a place of honor with another Buddha whose name is Accumulated Wisdom, and they've been talking. And then there's a multitude of thousands of people there. Um, and near the Buddha is his sort of right-hand man, second in command is Shariputra, uh, who is known to be an aesthetic that, you know, he had started his 
spiritual life in a practice where he was denying sensual pleasures and obviously not having sex, not married, not having children, uh, eating very small amounts of food. And, um, and that was a way to reach um, a spiritual awakening. He um, lets go of that and follows the Buddha who had, you know, chosen not to go the ascetic path and didn't feel that it was the ultimate way to enlightenment. Uh, so he's been with Shara, uh, Buddha for a long time. And then uh, coming into the story is Manjushri, who has been, has been away, and he suddenly reappears um, in a very dramatic way. Manjushri, who's another devoted follower, a bodhisattva, and his uh, characteristics are that he um, was very wise and also was known sort of as the questioner that would ask questions of Buddha and also has a sword. And when they depict him, he's holding a sword up like this. And that's um, a sign of his ability to cut through uh, views and cut through our attachment to form and have insights and also his uh, he has a strong understanding of emptiness of all things so manjushri uh emerged from the sea and after his long journey where he was sharing the lotus sutra with many people and he pays his respects to the buddhas and then he's asked by accumulated wisdom how many he had led to the way. And Manjushri asked him to wait a minute and see for himself. And then countless bodhisattvas arise out of the sea. And he's all these people. And then accumulated wisdom asked Manjushri if he had ever encountered anyone anywhere in his vast travels who had followed the Dharma Flower Sutra so well that they were qualified to become a Buddha quickly. Majushri replied that yes, there is the daughter of the dragon king, Sagara, just eight years old. And this dragon king and the dragon people in India, they were called the Nagas and they lived in the sea, and they were the protectors of the Dharma. They were considered to be very wise, uh, you know, uh, mythical creatures that were admired by the Buddha. So she comes from this very um, wise setting. She's, so we can imagine she's had a wonderful childhood <laughs> where, you know, she's been encouraged to, you know, I would not say selflessness exactly, but I, you know, I tried to imagine this carefully, like who is this young person, you know, that not, probably not exposed to ideas about being less than and, and, you know, that you're a female, it doesn't matter what you do because there was equanimity among this group. So he then describes her many faculties. And so he's 
you know, introducing her to the group and praising her. And he's a well-respected member of their community. So we would think that that would be enough <laughs> to, to make people understand that, yes, she really has these qualities. And so um, what he describes is basically all the characteristics that a bodhisattva should have. Uh, she's able to enter deeply into meditation, gain an understanding of all things, is able to speak well and teach other people. She has compassion for all living things as if they were her own children, full of blessings and thoughts in her minds, and the explanations from her mouth are both subtle and great. Compassionate and respectful of others, kind and gentle, she is able to attain awakening. So the other Buddha accumulated wisdom, recalling that Chakyamuni Buddha had devoted enormous time and effort to achieving awakening expresses doubt, but this girl could do so in a moment. So his concern is about time. Like, can we just suddenly become a Buddha. And he's been, you know, hearing that all other people on earth have had to take a long time. But even before he finished saying this, the girl herself appeared and went over to Shakyamuni and bowed deeply before him, expressing the thought that only he could know whether or not she is qualified to attain awakening because he alone knows that she has truly heard the Dharma. Then we have Shariputra. He speaks up, expressing conventional belief. I think, oops, excuse me, you think that in no time at all you will attain the unexcelled way. So first of all, he puts it on the dragon princess, but it's his own thought. This is hard to believe. Why? Because the body of a woman is filthy and impure and not a vessel for the Dharma. How could you attain unexcelled awakening? So this is the thought of the time and it is thought, the thought of those who want to maintain celibacy at the time, that the female is the one drawing them into you know, breaking their vows. And it's also the thinking that the Buddha has spent a lot of time teaching people that they're, they are creating um, ideas in their minds and then acting on those. And it's not the external object that's causing misdeeds. So he has really broken from the teachings by putting this belief out again. So he also adds in, the Buddha way is long and extensive, only after innumerable eons of enduring hardship, accumulating good works, and thoroughly carrying out all the practices can it be reached. Adding that she could never become a Buddha in a woman's body so quickly. So repeats it again. So what does the dragon princess do? Does not engage with him. And as she said, only the Buddha is going to know. So she goes to the Buddha 
and offered a valuable jewel she had with her to the Buddha, who accepted it immediately. Then she asked Shariputra and accumulated wisdom, the two that questioned her, whether the Buddha had accepted the gem quickly or not. The two of them responded most quickly. So they're honest. <laughs> and she said, use your holy powers to watch me become a Buddha even more quickly than that. And again, as, you know, I've read this many times and there was months that I just kind of mulled it over in my mind about this jewel. And we hear that in a lot of the older teachings and it's a common theme about a precious gem, a jewel, and it's often associated with Buddha nature. And knowing we have Buddha nature is one of our difficulties, you know, our doubt of our own self. So it's hidden. And in her case, it wasn't hidden from her. She realized she has Buddha nature. And she also realized, you know, it's through the generos generosity and sharing. And, and so to me, this is her action of way of communicating to the Buddha. Here I have this Buddha nature. Here I give it to you. Here you receive it. You know, and it's it's that is their communication about becoming a Buddha. She doesn't go into long explanations or give her resume or what well, here's I've done a thousand good works. It's it's the ability to do that action in the moment and and the giving and the receiving and the gift. And we don't hear the Buddha questioning, is she a Buddha? You know, our Shakyamuni Buddha, is he questioning her? No, he's, a, he's experiencing in the moment this awakening that's within her. And in her response to Shariputra is, use your holy powers to watch me become a Buddha. So it's a, you know, an appeal to stop with the conventional thinking and open up your vision. And then the whole congregation saw her suddenly change into a man, carry out all of the Bodhisattva practices and go to the pure world in the South where she sat upon a jeweled lotus flower, attained supreme awakening, and then there's conventional thought about what a Buddha would look like, and they describe this. Acquire the 32 major and 80 minor marks of a Buddha and began to teach the Dharma all over the universe. Shariputra accumulated wisdom and everyone else in the congregation accepted her teaching amid great rejoicing. So they're very happy to have a Buddha, <laughs> uh, but they didn't become Buddhas. You know, they're seeing, and you know, the, certainly we can all experience this story in a different way. And initially, I read it and I was like, that's not satisfying to me. I don't want her to change into a man. And 
the commentary afterwards, uh, uh, Jean Reeves um, points out that this is all the people of the time knew, that this is what a Buddha would look like, and that um, they didn't have the vision to understand it could be any other way. And so what I've at the point I'm telling you, I'm sharing with you right now, my, my thinking about it is she was using skillful means, or it's a combination of, it wasn't about her being recognized as a girl. It wasn't about her being female. Her Buddha, um, action is to reach everybody to as to be able to communicate with people so their suffering can be eased and what will that take and what are they able to absorb and so because we all as humans are caught in our conventional thinking the buddha's will approach us in a way that we can recognize so that we can interact at least with this um, healing power of the Buddhas. Uh, if we, Manjushri did not need this. Manjushri saw her potential, understood that she could become a Buddha. The Buddha didn't need to see it that way. Uh, Shariputra did. And it's certainly a comment on his limitations, um, but her, you know, the what the image actually looked like for the congregation is a comment on their limitations, and not a comment on mm, she gave in and did, did it their way so they could grasp, you know, that she was capitulating. I think is the word I'm looking for. And that's where I'm at right now with the story. So I am done with my part of the presentation. And if anybody has questions or thoughts, I'd like to stop here and be open to that. And I get a chance to turn and see who's out there. Everybody. Yes. So Stuart Virginia. Um, I have um, <clears throat> I have um, for a long time um, thought about the word gem and precious stone, partly because it's in my Kai name. Um, it was also in my confirmation name. So I really spent a lot of time thinking about this. And so I'm really glad that you brought up this idea of it's like a giving of yourself, you know. Um, so that it's like, because it can get distracted with this idea of gem, and then the priest gets something, you know, like this yeah. holy person gets some, you know, worldly yeah. treasure, mm -hmm. and they just get enriched, you know. So it's really distracting. And I like the idea of the pureness of it. It's just, the gem is the most precious thing of, of us, mm -hmm. and I give it up freely. So I'm really glad. Mm -hmm. That's really, really resonated. And the other piece to this story that resonates is this idea of two types of Buddha. 
like right so there's this idea even in buddhism um the i am buddha and i'm just when i'm practicing buddhism i'm trying to get to the buddha that i already am you know like so that's one part of buddha and i'm not really good with but there's other parts of buddhism right that says you are trying to attain it you're not there and you're you're going to get a buddha buddha you know become a buddha and others are you are a buddha and you're just trying to like like a like a gem mm-hmm. you're trying to polish it off mm-hmm. so that it shines mm-hmm. and i think i think when i hear that story i hear that tension mm-hmm. you know um in there yeah. thank you yeah it's, it's definitely trying to uh address the misunderstanding about becoming a buddha you know, and that, that really a theme in the Sutra. So, Fuku, right here. I think you must have. Um, I make up that you must have occurred to you um, um, the, the real historical people that are writing this. There's ability to look beyond their limitations and see some treasure or an angle on the story that was not necessarily seen or perceived by them. Um, and I think, um, so I'm just wondering if it just seems to you that um, there really was this it was very it was that simple a woman couldn't do this so I'm going to present it as a man or do you think that there was some real insight in the authors recognizing the very issue that we're talking about because the Buddha always said that women are equal to men and here he's in front of a group of people that are treating you know the words are harsh you know, mm-hmm. filthy and I mean this is like a real wow <laughs> this is out of the out of the box yeah. You see what I'm saying? There's always this thing like, well, that's their time, and so they thought that way. And so what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is to the, what degree you're working with that and saying, well, it was and wasn't of their time. or um, Well, within their time, actually, it was believed it was impossible to start in a woman's body okay. and become a Buddha. Okay. So that, that, that was a lot for people to take in. The, you could even study the Dharma as a woman, mm-hmm. right? And, and the Buddha was questioning that and, and did allow women to listen to him. And, you know, even him talking to her is like out of the norm that he would have talked to her. So, um, so I think it had some radical elements at the time that the story was conceived of. Uh, the other interesting thing that Jean Reeves notes is because of this story, when in the history of its life in Japan, the Lotus Sutra was put in all the nunneries that were established by the state around the sixth century because of that story. And there were statues made of her in China where she was next to Avalokiteshvara because of that story, mm-hmm. you know, to 
to represent the possibility that all people, even women, <laughs> could could uh, become a Buddha. And it seems so little, like not enough. Like it, yeah. it should. They should have just eradicated this idea way back when. But as we know, that's not how we turn a giant society. You know, it just you can't have one person speak up and the whole society changes directions. And I always appreciate Buddha's approach that he. I think he was more subtle and more little increments kind of person because I grew up as a Christian with the Jesus figure who was not like he really pushed for dramatic change and we know he was killed. And the Buddha had a long life of being able to share. And that was that was his approach. And Jesus had a different approach. And then we know there's been other prophets that have done things differently, but um, it's, it's for, for me, the takeaway and my experience always kind of comes out of some of my nursing and I know how much time we have left. We got another nine minutes. Nine minutes. Okay. Um, and I stumbled today and I said, a new nurse. <laughs> yeah, it's because I want more nurses. <laughs> Maybe the new niece will be a yeah, new nurse. <laughs> uh, but within nursing, and most of you know, I speak to people about dying. And I find myself often tailoring what I'm saying, how I'm presenting myself to what people can absorb in the moment that I'm talking to them because I want them to hear something, you know, and um, I, I know this is just an approach and, and I don't think it's the only approach. And there are other stories of the Buddha really questioning people on their conventional beliefs and saying, look, you're, you're creating this with your mind. And then he'll go through all the steps of how they're doing that and try to, unwind it for them. But in this case, that's not how it was uh, addressed, you know, and so we have to be flexible, like, is it going to work this time? And of course, as I'm reading that, I'm thinking, I'm reading this, I'm thinking of our, our difficulties we're facing today and our, um, you know, like, I, I asked you to read the land acknowledgement, because I wanted to listen to it. And it's, always close to me about how I was raised concerning the, you know, the native people that were already here and how they were treated and they were treated as not human, just like basically Shariputra wanted to say about the dragon princess, you're really not human. You're just this dirty thing. And that is very similar to what the white people chose how they chose to see native peoples in all parts of the world that they went to. And that's how they could, um, you know, kill them mm -hmm. and do it with ease. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, um, as I was reading this story, and as I said, thinking into what Shariputra was doing, I have to, I know that I've been in groups of people that, perpetuate that belief 
and and how do, how does it feel and how do and it, what's interesting is like this is how i look to other people when i even slightly start saying these things like this group deserved to have what they took from the native americans i mean it, i've i've heard that for people that are close to me we deserve to do it because we worked hard right and that i would let it go and let it go but now the more that we read that land acknowledgement it's just becomes more and more offensive to me that thinking um what do i do with that it's a good question yeah i when I hear this story, I don't, I'm, it seems contemporary to me. It's mm -hmm. like, it's not like, oh, that was back then and we're yeah. over that now. Mm -hmm. um, so I, what's sticking with me was the part where she invited them to uh, use their holy powers mm -hmm. to see, because um, it seems to me that that's what it takes. It's not like we can talk ourselves out of this conventional um, sort of burden that we carry, that we inherit, that uh, that we have the ability to see from a different place. And it seems to me that she was kind of seeing the Buddha nature in them and appealing to that. And so I asked myself, hmm, how, how can I do that in difficult situations? Yeah. Uh, appeal to people's Buddha nature um, skillfully. I, I, to me, that's a challenge. Uh, but I it was like a good reminder to hear that, oh, yeah, we have these holy powers to be able to see things uh, beyond our conventional trappings. Okay. Go. What I really what I really like about the story is that the dragon princess is eight years old. Yeah. <laughs> eight years old. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. and I just have this image of this cheeky little girl <laughs> who, you know, Shariputra is kind of like, no, 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 get away, get away, get away. And she's like, I have to deal with you. You know, it's the one. You know, um, I, I love the, I think it says something about her nature, just her directness, that she has not accumulated all of the, uh, all of the stuff that we accumulate as we, grow out of some of the, the freshness and innocence of childhood. Yeah. Um, it speaks to that uh, ability to just be so clear and so direct that you, mm -hmm. you often see in children who, as you mentioned, probably had a really, you know, nurturing childhood, mm -hmm. but just the, the confidence of a child. Mm -hmm. And the, the purity and clearness of a child, I think, is striking to me in this story. <clears throat> yeah. 
question. I hand on Zoom. Rain, go ahead. Um, yeah, um, I, yeah. I, I hope you can hear me. I I really uh, thought it was interesting to um, to take each character and see it as an aspect of ourselves, and it. Many times I've come up against a solid brick wall within myself that I could not possibly be a Buddha. And a part of me, like Shariputra, would list out all of the reasons why I could not be a Buddha or why I'm not. And it's like how I long to connect with that part of myself that's the that's this young girl that just hands the gem to me and I accept it. And I long for that uh, experience because it uh, is so um, simple and direct and so outside of the part, the aspect of myself that has a million reasons why I am not a Buddha. Really, that, that the Buddha didn't say the I with everybody was the right view attained is the great way. He, he said I along with all things attained the great way. And so when I saw her becoming a man, I thought of her as having no separation between herself and those who are still deluded, which we all are, um, and that together we all attain a great way. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Okay. Got me on. Oh. My oh. teacher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're all each other's teachers. <laughs> I've learned a lot from you today. So, two things, you know, we say a Buddha a lot, mm -hmm. and I kind of wonder where that a comes mm -hmm. from, because it's like becoming Buddha, or, you know, and Buddha being <coughs> awakened, you know, and that everybody has the opportunity to be awakened, more, making it more an active thing than a prone, than mm -hmm. a noun. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But... It seems to me that Shakyamuni Buddha actually crossed paths with many women. Mm -hmm. You know, I was thinking of you know the woman who he whose child died and he sent to go find the mustard seed from mm -hmm. a house that hadn't experienced death to this woman who lost her whole family and was wandering around naked in the woods because she was so distraught and everybody and all his disciples were ignoring her and he went and he said go get her some clothes and a blanket and he took her in and you know to his wife and his mother and yeah you know, his stepmother you know it's kind of like it just seemed like 
he acquiesced to the time a bit that that when these women wanted to become nuns, there were all these rules that he put there, but he still acknowledged that, yeah, they can do this. And so, and the, these other women, you know, somehow were like all these other people. It's like they heard the Buddha and suddenly they were awakened. And it's like, so, you know, that it just seemed like, Somehow he had his, he understood something, but, and he was basically raised by women, you know, his father helped a lot, but I think his stepmother really made sure his head was screwed on, right? <laughs> Thank God for the mothers. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for your talk.